before we come to that, let's just pray to you. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true. But as we come to it now, Father, we are conscious that left to ourselves, you know, we cannot gain from it study. So we pray that you would come by your spirit, that you would come and teach us and change us and make us the people we ought to be. Meet with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I guess living at home, I get a little bit of stick over various, various things. One of the main ones is, I get told I've got a very weird memory. I can remember lots of strange things. Cup finals from the 1970s, yes, I put them all there. Scripts from Faulty Towers, yes, they're all there, I can put them, verbatim. And one of the things that often gets said to me at home is, you can remember sermons. Sermons from years and years and years ago. Well, yeah, sometimes that's true, sometimes it's not. But this Isaiah chapter 6, I do remember hearing a man preach on this in 1979. <laughs> so that's quite a long time ago, I'll admit. I can even remember the date. It was the 31st of December, 1979. And I've been a Christian about three, maybe four months. And I heard a man explain what this passage was all about. And it's stuck with me ever since. And I'm hoping, as we go through it tonight, that it'll stick with you as well. Get into your, your mind. You see, this book of Isaiah is quite an amazing book. The man himself is called the Evangelical Prophet. The book itself is sometimes called the Fifth Gospel. And the reason it's called that is because Isaiah points us so clearly and so plainly to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, whether you go to the church at Christmas time, and there's various passages people will choose at Christmas to speak on. One of them that gets chosen a lot is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. Other people attend maybe at Easter time. Well, Easter, one of the passages that is very often spoken on in churches is Isaiah 53, all about the suffering servant, the one who suffers in our place, pointing us clearly to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the amazing facts about this book is that it's quoted in the New Testament, not just more than any particular other book, but it's actually quoted more in the New Testament more than all the other Old Testament books put together. So this is a, an amazing book. And what was it that drove this man on to record this book? Well, I think we have some of the seeds here in chapter 6. I want to give you a little, start off with a little bit of a history lesson. Woohoo! I hear you say. Okay, well, we're in the year 740 BC. We're in the town or the city of Jerusalem, although nobody called it Jerusalem, everyone who lived there would have called it the city of David. Because this was the place where David and then his, his sons after him reigned in Judah. This is Jerusalem. And at this time, we're told in verse 1, King Uzziah has died. Now what do you know about King Uzziah? Maybe not very much. Let me tell you a little bit. He reigned for over 50 years. 
He started off very well and then sort of frittered away. When he first became king, any decision he had to make, he went to the prophets and he asked them, what, what does God want me to do? But now, at the end of his life, he chooses not to do that. And verse 1 tells us Uzziah had died. And onto the throne comes Jotham. Jotham is his son. He's only been king jointly with his dad for 10 years. He'll reign for 16 years in all. And really, Jotham is a bit, of a, a bit of a copy of his dad. He starts off really keen, but already, when this is written, he's starting to give way. So God's prophets will come and say, go this way, and he'll choose to go that way. After 16 years, he is gone, and his son, Ahaz, comes to be king. He was only 20 when he became king, and he reigned for 16 years, and he was an absolute disaster. He introduced idols into the temple, he desecrated the altar in the temple, he took his son and burnt him as an offering to, to idols. Terrible man. And he died, and in his place came Hezekiah. And as bad as Ahaz was, Hezekiah was good. And he tried to reform the whole of the country. And he found it difficult. He tried to get rid of the idols, but the people loved their idols. He tried to get rid of injustice. He tried to get rid of oppression. And the more he tried, the more he seemed to be hitting stumbling blocks. And then he died. And in his place came his son Manasseh. An extremely wicked man. And if Jewish tradition is correct, King Manasseh took this man Isaiah, placed him inside a tree trunk, and sawed him in half. That's how Isaiah is said to have died. Now there's what, five kings. That's 55 years history. And in all those 55 years, Isaiah was faithful to God. Isaiah, God said, here is the message Isaiah and gave, went out and gave that message. So how did he do that? How did he keep going for all those years? So when, when there was a, was a good king and he comes along and he encourages him, and when there was a bad king, he'd come along and he'd rebuke him. And he'd warn. And whatever he did, it was entirely in accordance with what God had told him to do. And as we see at the end of the chapter, he gets very little encouragement. For all his ministry, no one is going to listen. So here's the question. How did this man keep on going? How did he keep on going for 55 years? Well, this chapter tells us. I want us to put our time into three, obviously. In this chapter, we have three looks. First of all, we see Isaiah looks upwards. And he sees God. And he learns some important lessons about God that you and me need to learn as well. Then he looks inward to himself. We saw on the screen before, you know, I'm so awful. He learned some lessons about himself. <coughs> and then he looks outwards. <coughs> when God says, who shall I send? Isaiah says, I'm your man. I'm the one that will go. Three looks. Upwards, inwards, and outwards. 
So number one, he looks upwards. You see, understanding who the God is that we serve is vital. I was reading a book by the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and, and <coughs> they, they don't know him, I don't know who he is. He was a famous preacher in the 20th century, certainly one of the leading lights in this country. And because of that, lots of people used to come to him and say, well, I've got this problem, I've got that problem in the chair. How, what do I do? And Dr. Lord Jones said, all these people come to me with these different problems. But really, they all have the same root. And the root is that they don't know God very well. If we know God, then our problems will be solved. It is his, his idea. So what does this great vision that Isaiah has teach us about God? Number one, it teaches us that God is near. That he's not a million miles away. That he's not somewhere over the rainbow, somewhere up in the sky. You know, back in the early 60s when the space race uh, first began, the Russians were the first to send a man into space. And his name was Yuri Gagarin. <coughs> I think I've pronounced that right, may not be. And Yuri Gagarin went into space. And he came back down again. And one of the things he said when he came back down, he said, I've been to space and I proved that there is no God. Because I went up there and I couldn't see. That's what he said. You know, somebody once said, it's better to keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than to open it and remove all doubts. Well, I'm afraid that this doesn't have to has chosen the second option. Because that's not where God is in space. When the Apostle Paul went to preach in Athens to all the, the Egeds who lived in Athens, to all the philosophers, he wanted to teach them this very truth. And he said, in him we live and move and have our being. What does that mean? It means that all of our lives are lived out in the presence of God. And if, like happens to Isaiah here, if we could just draw back the king, we would see what he sees here. <laughs> now what do we make of that? Well, I would suggest that someone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a frightening, <coughs> that is a frightening thing, to know that, that everything we do, everything we say, all of our thoughts, all of our motives, are seen by the one in whom we live. But if you're one of God's people, if you're someone who's turned from your sin and you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this should be an encouragement to you. You know, the times we go out to various places and we think, oh, you know, I'm all on my own. Well, that's never true. Because God is near. And as I see that here. Number two, he sees that God is sovereign. Verse 1, in the year the king is I saw so the Lord sitting upon a throne. So here he is. The king, Uzziah, has died. The throne of Judah is vacant. But the throne of heaven is never, never vacant. And this shows us that God is sovereign in who he speaks to. See, don't know what you think about where he was. We're told at the end of verse 1 that Isaiah is in the temple. Now, what do you think of when you read that? Do you think he was in this, this, this great building, sort of sitting alone quietly? You know, we, we were on a holiday last week and we went to a, some 
old church in the somewhere in Kent, and St. Dunbar's was it called, I think we all get this church. And we walked in and we were the only people in there. Typical sort of church and you could go around and it smells a certain smell of polish that you get. And you can go around it and it's all very quiet and still. And I must admit, when I, especially when I was younger, I thought that's possibly what it was like in the temple for Isaiah. Well, that's totally wrong. <laughs> the temple would have been full of people. There would have been priests offering sacrifices. There would have been Levites reading out the law. There would have been people coming and going everywhere. And yet God speaks not to all these people, but to just this one man. God is sovereign. He speaks to him. We're told in verse 5, uh, at the end of verse 5, he says, that I saw the king, the Lord of hosts, the God of armies. And you know, if you read through the prophets in the Old Testament, you'll see that this is a major theme. Now why is that? Why are they always reminding the people that the God is king, that God is in control, that God is sovereign? Well, it's because as we go through the prophets, the people were facing a hard time. They were facing difficulties. And they need to be reminded, yes, that your, your situation may be really tough. But God is still in control. Why is that important? Let me tell you a story. When Hannah had that, when she was just a tiny baby, and her brother James would be about two, two and a half, and he had these pet goldfish, it's one of my favourite stories, this. He had these two goldfish, Called, I'm going to the yeah, these two goldfish called Boris and Boris. Okay? Call them Boris and Boris, you can't get confused. Which one that was Boris? Which one that was Boris? Fine. And every day he'd come downstairs, and at the bottom of the stairs we had a fishbowl and a little sort of tub of fish food. And he'd put his hand in, feed him, maybe chat to them a while in some weird way. And off he'd go. Happy laddie. Boris and Boris. Then one day he came downstairs and he walked into the front room with me, and he was sitting there, and he said, Mum, one of the fish has stopped. Okay. So he went outside and showed sure enough, one of the fish was lying on top of the bowl. Stopped. Or well, dead, as we sometimes call it. And he's just lying there. And his mum thought, oh, he's going to be really upset here. This, you know, this, is, this is a thing he looks forward to every morning. And she went, oh, never mind. He said, yeah, it's all right. My dad will fix it. Okay? So, that night I had to come home from work and the next day take it away and come back with a fixed fish. It was different, slightly different size and colour. That's what happened when you fix them so, and then put it into the hole. And the thing is, here was something which a toddler could have been devastated by. The loss of his pet. But it didn't faze him at all. Why? Because he had complete confidence in his father. Okay, that's gone now. I'm rightly so. But you and I, as we go through the Christian life, there will be things that happen to us that will mock us. Things which are terrible, we would never want to happen. How do we face them? Well, the key is to know we can have complete confidence in our heavenly Father. And that's what Isaiah sees. He sees that God is near, he sees that God is sovereign. Thirdly, he sees that God is holy. That verse 3, one calls to another, here the angel, the seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
Now notice that they're not singing about God's sovereignty or of his might or even of his grace. They're singing about his holiness. You know, when the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea, when they got to the other side, they had this, this incredible sort of deliverance. And Moses sits down and he writes it in his famous hymn and he says, Who is like unto you, glorious in holiness? And Isaiah is so struck by the holiness of God that 25 times throughout the rest of his book he will refer to God as the Holy One of Israel. And all of God's other attributes are wrapped in his holiness. After all, imagine an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God that wasn't holy. So we see that God is near. We see that God is sovereign. We see that God is holy. That's what Isaiah says even looks upwards. Number two, he looks inwards. And what does he see when he looks inwards? Well, first of all, he sees his own unworthiness. Verse 5. I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Now this is a very common reaction, when people suddenly realise how holy God is, we realise how unholy we are. When we see how pure he is, we realise how impure we are. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul said? When he said, who am I? I am the chief of sins. I am a nobody. And so it is here with Isaiah. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. You know, it's interesting, he zeroes in on his lips. It's very often in our words, isn't it, that we let ourselves down. You look at the book of James, it talks about the tongue being like a fire that no one can put out. Or like a wild animal that no one can control. It's a whale of iniquity. I remember when I was younger, uh, our pastor used to tell us, before you speak, think, T-H-I-N-K. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? If he's got all of those things, you don't need to say it. You need to say it. That's good. I'm not sure about the eyes, but it's fine. But certainly those true and helpful, necessary kind. If it's not those things, you don't need to say it. But of course, it's not just the tongue he's talking about here, it's his whole life. And it's the whole life of the people amongst whom he lives. You know, you look back in chapter 1, it has a terrible description of the, the, the country of Judah at that time. So he sees his own unworthiness. He doesn't stop there because he also sees God's forgiveness. What happens? God acts immediately. Verse 6, he sends this seraphim, this strange creature. I'm not sure it looked quite like that one. It was a picture of like this six wings covering its head and its, its feet. A very strange creature. But it's sent, it's a messenger, and it touches verse 7 his mouth. The very thing he'd been talking about. And here he is, he's told, you have been forgiven. Not because of his efforts. Not because of his goodness. Not because he, he promised to do better in the future. Purely from the grace of God. What do we learn from that? Well, I think there are two lessons. 
Number one is the importance of self-examination. You know, the preacher D.L. Moody, American, was once asked, Mr. Moody, you know, he was a big public figure, so obviously he was a subject of a lot of attacks in the media in the day. And he once asked, Mr. Moody, who has caused you the most trouble? And he said, the man who has caused me the most trouble is D.L. Moody. It words, it's me. It's easy, isn't it, to see the fault in others. We can all say, well, they're doing that wrong, and he's doing that wrong, and she's not, not doing that, and miss the faults in our own lives. And when I was a kid, I used to buy these books from W.A. Smith, um, books of jokes, 15p, anyway. So they're all there. And man, you can buy these And you get theme books, like, you know, mother-in-law jokes, or knock-knock jokes, or whatever. And I got this one, uh, Doctor Doctor one, this fellow went to the doctor, and he said, I can't sleep at night. And the problem is, my wife keeps a pet dogs in the bedroom. And there's an Alsatian, a Labrador, a Chihuahua, and a Scotty. And he said, the smell is terrible. I just can't sleep with the smell. And the doctor said to him, well, it's not really a medical problem. Why don't you just open the window? And the man said, what? And let my pigeons out. <laughs> okay, it doesn't get any better with anything else. We see the point. I mean, it's only a joke, but the idea is, look, we can see other people's faults, but not our own. But as I hear struck because of the holiness of God, it, it's me, I am worthy, I am undone. But it must be personal, because we also see the greatness God's love. Because if you look at our own hearts, we all know our own hearts are wicked. Our own hearts are weak. Our own hearts choose the wrong thing all the time. Yet the Bible tells us, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. The writer A.W. Pink said, the God who often forgives sinners never forgives sin. The God who often forgives sins never forgives sin. What does he mean by that? He means, yes, there is a way for forgiveness. And God will use that way. But he never forgives sin. Because all sin must be punished. And it will either be punished being borne by the person who has committed that sin or that punishment will be borne by the Lord Jesus Christ. All sin will be punished. So when we see our own hearts, when we see the greatness of God's love, surely it forces us again to look to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he looks upward, he sees God. He looks inward, he sees his own need, he sees his forgiveness. But thirdly, he looks outward. Verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Now when we've got good news, we're eager, aren't we, to tell others. When I was a little boy, maybe, certainly preschool, three or four, something like that, one Christmas I got a, a train set. Now it was not a fancy sort of hobby thing, it was just like a little circular thing, you, you wound up with a train around it. But I thought it was absolutely brilliant, okay? And I woke up on Christmas morning and I saw this on the bottom of my bed, ripped off me, and I was like, oh, it's a train set. And I set it up in 
bedroom, and while you were butting around the whole time, and then, what did you do? I bounced out of my room, ran down the, the, the landing, shouting, Mum, Dad, he's been, he's been, and I've got a train set. And my mum and dad said, Oh, yeah, it's half past two in the morning, or whatever it was he said, you know. They went, So keen. And we've had that experience uh, repeated to us, so there you go. That's, that's, that's the safer wife, I suppose. <laughs> but when you've got something good to tell, you want to tell them. Well, Isaiah here doesn't really get that good news, does he? But he does get the first thing is his willingness. Not because he's good, not because he's special, but because he's forgiven. He says, Here I am, I'll do it. Now contrast that with some of the other people we know in the Bible who are called by God. The very next book is Jeremiah. And God says to Jeremiah, I want you to go and speak to the people. And Jeremiah said, I can't do it. I'm just a kid. Get somebody else. Or Moses. God wants to deliver his people from Egypt. And he goes, here he is in the burning bush. He calls Moses out and says, here's a job. You've got to go and speak to Pharaoh. And Moses says, here I am. Send me brother. Let Aaron go instead. I can't speak. Well, Gideon, you know, he's, he's hiding. Trying to hide some food from the Midianites so he doesn't get nicked. And God comes to him and says, you're the one that's going to deliver Israel. And Gideon says, you've got the wrong address. You've got to the wrong post. It's not me. I'm a nobody. My family are no ones. What a contrast here with Isaiah. You know, he knows, he, he knows he's, he's, he's untold. He knows he's a sinner. But he still says, here I am. Send me. And he's willing because he knows he's forgiven. And he knows that there's a need. You know, again, if you look back, if you read chapter 1 of Isaiah, you see that, that Judah is described as something terrible. The things that are going on are just unspeakable. God said, looks at them and says, look, I'm sick of all your, your religion. All your sacrifices, forget them. And Isaiah knows he's got to go to these people with God's message. So how do we keep going? Well, we keep going because we must. Because the people who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ aren't simply neutral. We sometimes think like that, that you know, the, the, those of us who believe in others who, who are somehow neutral. No, they're not. They are lost. As Richard Baxter used to say that every time he got up to speak, he spoke as a dying man to dying men. I think that's something of the urgency that Isaiah has here. His willingness to go out because of the need that is there. So his willingness, and lastly we see his word. Now we're not going to go into too much detail in the, the, the words he's been given from verse 9 onwards. But basically he's told verse 9 and 10, look, nobody is going to listen. And of course that applied to him, the, the three mountains. That applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. No man spoke like him. But how many followers did he have? Just a handful. Today as well, I suppose. You know, we think how small we are in terms of the size of our country, how few there are in the faith. But that's it. Nobody's going to listen to Isaiah. And Isaiah is distressed by this in verse 11. He says, How long? Now, that's very much a covenant uh, question he's asking there. How long will God you promise that you couldn't with your people? How long is this going to go on? 
again, he's told, look, things are going to get a lot worse. The people are going to be carried away into captivity. But still, there's going to be a remnant. And what was true then, of course, is true when the Lord Jesus Christ came. How many people were there who believed when the Lord Jesus Christ was born into this world? And the prophetess, Simeon from the temple, Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth, Zechariah. That's about it. How small. That's hardly anything. How insignificant. No, that's God's remnant. And you and I should learn that we don't need to waste our time worrying about the future of the church. After all, the Lord Jesus Christ has guaranteed it will continue. The Lord Jesus Christ has said the gates of hell won't prevail against it. He will build his church. God will always have his people. That's what we're being told in these verses. That there will always be those who are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ until he comes again. But in Isaiah chapter 6, and the question is, what do we in Beckettree, what the, the hell would the Liverpool where I'm from, what do we need as a church? We need to understand who God is, that he is great, that he is holy, that he is a God of grace. We need to understand the desperate need of our own hearts and of those outside of the church. And we simply come before God and say like this man did, here I am. Send me. So we just pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel. We thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ all of our needs have been met. That he is the one who has paid the price that we deserve to pay. And he is the one who has lived the life that we cannot live. And died the death that we deserve. And so, Father, we pray that you would help each one of us to live a life of faith in him, seeking to share with others the good news of the gospel. Father, we pray that we would uh, take on the example of Isaiah and be those who say, here I am, send me. Father, help us to be those who go out into the world and preach the good news. Help us in this, we pray. And bless us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.